Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and your goodness and your unfailing mercies to us. We ask that your spirit and your angels will join us this morning, that our hearts will dwell together in love, discernment, and wisdom, and you will enable us to go out and spread the true message about you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number five in the uh, quarterly Jeremiah, and the title this week is More Woes for the Prophet. And the memory text is from Jeremiah 27, and it says, 20 verse 7, and it says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. Here we have a Bible text from Jeremiah. Should we take the Bible as it reads? Do we believe that if the Bible says something, it must be true? What do we do with passages like this? Was Jeremiah inspired when he wrote the book of Jeremiah? Yes. Yes? Well, how does inspiration work? Does it mean everything wrote, written by the, the prophetic penmen is to be taken concretely, literally, or is even factually true as they write it? Have you ever thought about that before? His feelings must be true when he was, you know, so depressed over everything, but that's not what we're going to take as our truth. Okay, so who said that he is expressing his feelings, so he's being honest and true about what he's feeling, but are his feelings describing reality of how God works? Is God a deceiver? No. No. And this is really critical. There are lots of passages in scriptures like this. Lots of passages that, that someone is expressing their perspective. You know, a classic one in, in um, Psalms. Happy is the man who takes his enemy's babies and smashes their heads on the rocks. Psalms 139. 137? Yeah. Uh, should we take that as a, as a, te- a key text and, and, and gather around to, to form Christian armies to find enemies and go smash their babies? No. No. So how does inspiration work? Do you think the people who wrote scripture had a better understanding of what they were writing? Or we today who are reading scripture have a better understanding of what they meant? Who has a better understanding? Or or did did the writers always really understand clearly the things they were writing about? Well, obvious ones like, did Daniel understand and all the things of his prophecies? No. No. Do we have better understanding today than Daniel did? Yes. Yeah, so that's an obvious one. How about things like this, though? This is uh, out of a book... A Bible commentator wrote in the book Desire of Ages, the following, four, page 494. The disciples realized that, that the mighty God clad in the garb of humanity was among them. Jesus rejoiced that though this knowledge was not possessed by the wise and the prudent, it had been revealed to these humble men. Often, as he had presented the Old Testament scriptures and showed their application to himself and his work, his work of atonement, they had been awakened by his spirit and lifted into a heavenly atmosphere. Of the spiritual truths spoken by the prophets, they had a clearer understanding than, than had the original writers themselves. Here, thousands of years later, the disciples, fishermen, tax collector, had a clearer understanding of what those Old Testament prophets wrote than the prophets who wrote them. Is that true for us today? How about the people who, who live at the very end of time who are to be witnesses at the end of time to the, to the prepared people for, for Christ's return? Would they necessarily need to have an understanding, a clear understanding of Scripture? So what then is the purpose of Scripture? This is the key question. To understand texts like Jeremiah, that we just read 20, verse 7, we have to understand its, its purpose. What is the purpose of the Scripture? Primary, fundamental, number one purpose. There you go. It's a revelation of God to man. That's its number one purpose. It's not a code book of how to behave, which many people use it as. It's a misuse of the book. But as we God is revealing himself to us, does the Bible also help frame the setting of this revelation? And what is the setting of God's revelation of himself? The great controversy over his character in a world in which human beings are infected with fear and selfishness, have carnal hearts. That's the setting in which this is transpiring. Is God working only with perfect, sinless people, or is he working with sinful people? How about the prophets? Were they perfect and sinless? No. Were they infinite and had all knowledge? No. Or were they sinners and had their own struggles 
Let's just look at the Apostle Peter. You remember Apostle Peter? Paul had to correct him publicly to his face because he was wrong about associating with the uncircumcised fellows. But he's an apostle. Did his error in who he associated with uh, in any way undermine his inspiration when he wrote scripture? No. We, I think we sometimes put prophets and people with prophetic gift on some type of a pedestal that they're almost infallible. And you know, I think it might be dangerous if we had a living prophet in the church today. I think at times when there's living prophets, maybe people stop thinking. They look to the prophet to tell them. Tell me what to think. Tell me what the answer is. But one of the apostles, Paul, wrote in Romans 14, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. So again, this class is not here to tell any of you what to think. I'm here to stimulate you to think for yourselves and come to your own conclusions. We look at scripture and the people who God worked with and through, we see this this struggle between God's working to reveal truth in their lives and use them for his purposes and sin working in their life to trip them up. Think about Abraham. Was he called of God? That means he didn't he didn't ever have doubts or or, or, or question his faith at any time. So he didn't take Hagar really because he questioned whether whether God would fill a promise. He didn't lie to Pharaoh about his wife. He, he didn't do those things, did he? <laughs> He did. He had a struggle, but yet he, through his continued relationship with God, overcame. How about Jacob? Did he doubt the promises of God? So he connives with his mother to deceive his father? Trick his brother? How about David? Yeah, but he's a murderer, an adulterer, a polygamist, but yet a man after God's own heart. How about Solomon? He had pride. He was lust. He worked 700 wives. He had to be somewhat mentally deranged right there. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. Think about that. <laughs> we can't keep up with one. <laughs> it's 700. I mean, what's going on there? Anyway, um, but after, uh, and he even worshiped false gods. I believe he even sacrificed one of his own children to uh, false gods. But after it all, after all this life of, of, of mistakes and shortcomings, he's, he repents, he comes back, and he writes Scripture. And only the holy men of God write Scripture according to the Scripture. So he's considered a holy man of God. Interesting. Elijah. Okay, here's a guy. He, yeah, but wait a second. He ran away in fear, didn't he? Yeah, but yet he went to heaven without seeing death. Peter denied the Lord three times with cursing but was an apostle of Christ. Jonah, he was a racist, a bigot, didn't want to, didn't really want, he wanted those Ninevites to die. But yet, he was still used of God to save a city. Do we read scripture with some type of lenses on that shut your thinking down? Well, the Bible said it. Who am I to think about that? I mean, if, if God deceives, then he deceives. Jeremiah said so. Well, that one's an easy one because I don't even know anybody who really believes God. But what happens when you read places where it says God's angry, God's wrathful, God kills, God... What do we do then? Well, the Bible said it. It must be so. Tuesday's lesson helps us with this. If you look at the second paragraph, it says, What comes after, though, comes directly from Jeremiah's own heart, written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is the heartfelt cry of a human being who simply doesn't like the situation he is in and is crying out about it. The lesson gets this, is, is absolutely right here. What we read here is the Holy Spirit inspiring uh, Jeremiah to write down his struggle, his concern, his fears, his perspectives, the way he's viewing it right now, which helps us realize, hey, you know something? You don't have to view everything exactly correctly at every minute to be useful in God's cause. It's a big lesson. How many of you think I can't be useful because I haven't got it all right yet? Jeremiah didn't have it all right, did he? So it's really not about, and, and I've, I've said this before, but I think it's pretty straightforward. How many believe when the Lord returns, at the moment of his arrival, when we're wif- wafting away up to the clouds to meet him in the air, that there will be any human being on earth that knows every detail of the scripture correctly? There won't be any of us that know it all. It's not about getting all the details right. It's about knowing him and his methods and having a renewed heart so you practice those methods so you're like him in character. <clears throat> Sunday. First paragraph says, 
Removed as we are by more than 2,000 years chronologically from Judah and perhaps even further removed culturally and socially, it's hard for us to understand all that was going on in the time of Jeremiah. When reading the Bible, especially the harsh warnings and threats that God uttered against the people, many people think that the Lord is portrayed here as harsh, mean, and vindictive. This, however, is a false understanding based on a superficial reading of the text. Instead, what the Old Testament reveals is what the New Testament does as well. God loves humanity and wants it saved, but he does not force our choice. If we want to do wrong, even despite his pleas to us, we are free to do so. We just have to remember not only the consequences, but that we were warned about them beforehand. That's well said. Isn't that well said? Yes, that's exactly correct. We were warned about them beforehand. God gives us opportunities. He gives us choices. The consequences are on us if we choose to deviate from the design. The lesson asks us to read Jeremiah 23, 14 and 15. Jeremiah 23, 14 and 15. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have come, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says concerning the prophets. I will make them eat bitter food and drink poisoned water because from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has spread throughout the land. What do you understand these people were doing? says they're committing adultery. What were they doing? They were saying everything was right when it wasn't. They were saying everything was right when it wasn't. So when they, when they use this word adultery, I just want to pause on this for a moment because many people, when they hear that word, I see this in my practice all the time from good Christian folk, they hear the word adultery and they immediately think in a very, very narrow definition of the word, sexual infidelity. And it certainly can include that. But is that what God is talking about here? When he calls the... Pro- yeah, wh- sold out to the other side? So I like where you're going with that. Sold out to the other side. What is the ultimate real basis or root of adultery? Betrayal. Unfaithfulness. I like the word... Unfaithfulness is absolutely true. I like the word betrayal, though. Because it really kind of... For me, it has a connotation of just... You know, stabbing the knife in the back is what it is. And that's what adultery is. Because adultery is betraying the trust... So if you think about your relationships you're committed to, somebody has put their heart in your hands, they've trusted you to have their back, to be loyal, to be faithful. Adultery is betrayal of that trust. These people were God's representatives. They went out saying, I'm speaking for him. And then they misrepresented him. They lied about him. This was a betrayal of his trust in them. Betrayal of their position and authority. From the SDA Bible commentary on this passage, it says the following. The hypocritical boldness of the false prophets that led them to prophesy in the Lord's name while they transgressed the Lord's commandments was more horrible to Jeremiah than even the open worship of Baal. Because of the very nature of sin, the very nature of sin of hypocrisy, there is more hope for the open sinner than the hypocrite. This idea that I've got it right, but I'm actually living wrong, and I'm promoting this false view as if it's the right view, There's more hope for the person who believes themselves to be in open rebellion because they have some awareness that they're in open rebellion. Yes? And think of swearing. Yes, that's a good point. Keep going. Whereas often by being called a Christian, and and in fact not being one, we're doing more against God than just swearing. So like all over the news worldwide this week, I mentioned it right before class, there's this Christian church in New York that beat a 17-year-old and 19-year-old for 10 hours. The 19-year-old died. And they beat them to beat the sin out of them. The, the church commute, punching, kicking, striking with electrical cords. 10 hours, basically, according to the testimony, they were in the church for 10 hours and just being beaten for 10 hours. And one of the 19-year-old died. The 17-year-old's in the hospital in serious condition. Multiple people have been arrested. Now, and all over the world now, think about this Christian church. Are they representing Christ? Are they taking the Lord's name in vain? Absolutely. They've done a great disservice to Christianity. A great disservice. Which is why we have 
She says, which is why we have Muslims today. To a great degree, she's correct. The whole, you know, Muhammad was protesting much of the same similar abuse of Christianity um, by Catholicism in the Dark Ages. Much of what he was doing was a, a protest against this distorted and oppressive view of God in which they would burn people at the stake and, and, the, and all this type of, of coercive abuse that was happening. It's very, it very interesting, though, that that organization, to a great degree now, is a bastion for that same type of methodology. Those people that are being beheaded for Christianity are shot. And they, like the people that are under the altar. So in this passage of Jeremiah, what do you think the word make them eat bitter food and poisoned water means? It says God will make them eat bitter food and poisoned water. What do you think that means? Okay, this is, this is metaphorical language. He's not talking about their actual H2O to hydrate their body, is he? Is he talking about the nutritional substance they put in to give physiological strength? Is that what he's talking about here? No, it's symbolic. So in Bible terms, what is food and water symbolic of? Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven that has come down, right? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. So what's the symbolism here? The, the bread or the, or the food is symbol of the word of God. And, this, and the water is symbolic of the spirit of God. Okay? If they reject the, the food and water from God because they won't take the truth, then what are they left with? Poison, lies, distortions, evil spirits, selfishness. So he makes them drink it simply by the consequence of their choice of rejecting what he actually offers. Because there's a, there's a passage in Thessalonians says that uh, those who did not love the truth were given over to strong delusion to believe a lie. I uh, heard a pastor on Christian radio when I was driving in the car preaching on this passage, and he said, You see? If you don't accept the truth, God will use his power to make you delusional. No, it doesn't understand how reality works. It's not how it works. Think about it. On any subject matter, and we'll do something very simple. We go outside today, it's clear sky, sky is blue, and I look up and say the sky is blue. Not only that, I will get a, a uh, meter that measures the refractory wavelength of light, and I will actually give you the refracted wavelength of light coming back so I can tell you in nanometers what that refracted uh, light index is. And I say, this is the color of the sky right now. You are still free to reject it, though. You are still free. I don't believe that. Now, once you reject the truth, pick anything else. What's the only thing left for your mind to rest upon once you've rejected the truth? It doesn't matter what other color you pick, does it? The only thing left is lies. So those who don't love the truth are given over to strong delusion to believe lies. Those who don't want the bread of heaven, the only thing left is poison. This is how it works. This is how reality works. So why do you think uh, we have examples like this in Scripture where God talks this way? Remember the story of Micaiah and Ahab? And Micaiah goes in and says to Ahab, uh, uh, a spirit said this and a spirit said that, and one said, I know how we'll lure Ahab into his death against Ramoth Gilead. I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And the Lord said, go and do it. Why, Why do we have that? Does the Lord send lying spirits? Who was Ahab worshiping? Baal. What kind of God is Baal? This is level one maturity. This is power over. This is reward and punishment thinking. And at level one maturity, a God establishes his authority by being the most powerful God. Because the most powerful one in the room can punish everybody who disagrees and can reward everybody who's on his side. And so God establishes his authority with level one thinkers as being the one who's in charge and making things happen. And the message, though, if you realize the message, what was the message they had? wasn't that God lies, it was that you're going to die if you go to war. So God still sends a message of mercy to try to save Ahab from dying at war. That's what happened there. Jeremiah, that's history, Jeremiah 15, 26 to 31. It says, Among my people are wicked men who lie in wait, like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch men. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful. They have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? 
They set traps to catch people. What kind of traps? Ponzi schemes? Bait and switch? Emails of missionaries stranded in some part of the world and needing money to, to help them. Uh, emails of having won a, have a, a lottery of a million dollars, but they have to pay $10,000 taxes in order to get that, and they'll share it with you if you send the $10,000 pay their taxes. You get those emails? <laughs> emails reporting that someone has been misusing your credit card, and they need your number and security code to make sure that the card's in your possession. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, these, I mean, is, is this the kind of, the, the, the traps that they were setting? No, I don't think they were setting these traps, actually. How about religious traps? How about this one? You have alien neuronal programming in your brain that's causing you to do bad things. And if you want to live free, you must get this foreign programming out of your brain. It will only cost you $10,000 per one-hour treatment session to do this. And we can decode you and deprogram you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? This is Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard. And you pay $10,000 an hour to have them deprogram the foreign alien coding in your brain. How about if you participate in a system that says if you send a proper donation, we will send you a a prayer cloth that we've prayed over that will heal you. I'm not making this stuff up, guys. How about a system that says God is wrathful and angry and something must be done to turn away his anger and wrath? How about that system? Well, this is from George Knight's book published by the Review called The Cross of Christ, which many theologians hold up as the best explanation of the atonement. And this is, quote, God is angry, and his anger is personal and active. God's wrath must be propitiated or turned away from the sinner. That was one aim of Christ's self-sacrifice on the cross. The second Armageddon engagement, which is the end of the thousand years, finds God executing his ultimate wrath not only on Satan, but on those sinners who have refused to accept his principles to their lives and Christ's vicarious sacrificial propitiation, the basis of grace that turned aside the divine wrath, judgment on sin. Do you understand this is orthodox Christianity that pretty much all the denominational churches accept and what is taught as the mainstream way of thinking about God in the Seventh-day Adventist church? This is an infection. We find ourselves, I believe, in the same position that Israel find, found itself in in Jeremiah's day. People purporting to speak for God, but presenting Baal. A God, remember who Baal was, if you understand Baal, Baal was the son of El, like Elohim, El Shaddai. He was the God of creation who brings the weather, the thunder, the lightning, the, the produce in the spring. He is the God who fights against the Leviathan, the great serpent. Baal fought against Mote, the god of death. And in his battle with Mote, the god of death, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the land. This is Baal of Mesopotamian false god Baal that Israel was worshiping, Ahab was worshiping. Now what's wrong with worshiping the God who's the son of the father God El, who is the uh, creator God who brings life, who fights the serpent for us, who fights against death, who dies for us and rises again? Do you see how close that is to what we think? Here's the deal. Baal required propitiation and appeasement. You had to pay him. You had to assuage his anger and wrath. He, he, he was a, it was a God who would punish you if you didn't. And Baal became Zeus to the Greeks, the god of thunder. Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to Christians who worship a God who, like Baal, must be appeased and propitiated. This is Baal worship. That's why Malachi prophesies before the great and coming day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah must come again to turn the hearts back. This view is all based, this entire system of of legal, penal, propitiation, theologies, and payments is all based on accepting the idea that God's law functionally is no different than the laws that human beings make, a system of rules without inherent consequence that requires judicial oversight and imposement of coercive penalties for breaching the law. That's how our systems work. God is the creator, though. We're called in Revelation to worship him who made reality. His laws are the laws of physics, laws of health, the laws of love, the law of liberty, the law of worship, the laws upon which reality actually function. Breaches in these laws, as I've said many times, you'll laugh as I say it because I've said it many times, 
Humans can pass laws to make marijuana legal. They cannot pass laws to make marijuana healthy. That's the difference between man's law and God's law. God creates reality. The problem with this view that I read out of George Knight's book is it makes God out to be the source of pain, suffering, and death. God will inflict punishment and God will kill you. So Satan stands up and says, yes, go ahead. That is George Knight's book, The Cross of Christ. That was pages 63, 64, and 107. Now, it's like Satan standing up and saying, guys, I never said God wasn't powerful. I've never said that. He's got all power. My problem with him is he's not good. He's got an anger management problem. We can need some anger management classes. Get a little self-restraint going on there. See, if he would just leave us alone and not use his power to hurt us, we can live for eternity in sin because there isn't actually anything wrong with sin. There's something wrong with a God who'll kill you for it. This is imposed law construct. You break the rules, God then comes in and kills you for breaking the rules. It's a lie. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who reap to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. Sin is inherently destructive because it deviates from the very life design upon which the universe runs, and there is no life there. In fact, the reason this world even exists today is because God in grace suspends us in an artificial bubble of reality. This earth does not operate in the reality of the rest of God's universe. You understand that? No? Yes? No? This is artificial. It says Romans chapter 3, it says he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That's one, one place where he describes this. But as soon as Adam he sinned, God's life-giving glory was withdrawn from this world. So, uh, Daniel chapter 7, it says, the Ancient of Days takes its seats and rivers of fire come out before him and thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 stand in this fire. In the eternity future, the Revelation describes a new earth where the new Jerusalem's on earth and no sun will need to light the place because God's presence is his light. That is not the world in which we live. This is an artificial bubble of reality, sustained by God's grace for the purpose of the plan of redemption to be carried out through Christ so that we can be restored to unity with him to live in that reality. So it makes out God to be the source of pain, suffering, and death, which is, undermines our trust in him. We don't trust him if he's going to punish us. We, and so we create theologies functionally, and most of our theologies in Christianity, look at how they function. They're functioning to protect us from God covering us with the robe, paying the penalty, uh, doing something to the record books. In other words, putting some, some distance, some, some barriers, uh, having our advocate who stands before the Father pleading our case. This is what it's doing. Functionally, we don't trust him. We don't want to get near him. We want Jesus to stand there. We're terrified to go in his presence without Christ holding our hand. It teaches God is angry and must have something done to him to turn his anger or wrath aside, unless he will lash out and destroy his children. Christ then is presented as more gracious and tender in character than the Father, and Christ died to save us from the Father's anger and wrath. Grace, it says in this, in this quote up here that I read, that grace wouldn't exist if Jesus didn't die to propitiate the Father. It's the basis of grace, is what they said. The, Christ's death on the cross, which propitiates the Father's wrath, is the basis of grace. Do you understand what that is saying? God is not gracious. He's only gracious because Christ pays him to be. This is Baal worship. Divine wrath is the same as judgment on sin in this view as well. And judgment is judicial. It's an act of power to inflict. And who would want to spend eternity with that God? Yes. And now, now I want to empathize here a little bit because I really do think we are very similar to the problems of Jeremiah's day. Yeah. Jeremiah had an a, a elite priesthood who was teaching this distorted view about God. God condemns them sharply. Uh, I just read where he condemns the priests and prophets of, out of uh, the chap, chapter Jeremiah that I just read. Did God make a distinction between those who truly believed it versus those who were just raised in the school of the prophets and they were indoctrinated in this way and they never actually thought of it any other way? Did he make a distinction? I think there are many good people that teach this that have never heard a different view. But you think about that. People who are, think they're doing good but are still selling poison because they think they're doing good, does the poison then help people? Saul Tarsus. Saul Tarsus. Yes, he was zealous but without, without the truth and he was injuring people. But he thought he was doing good for a while. To me, I think we see that when we're out at the GC, when we're at the conference. Because people have never heard 
another alternative. That is why this message is so electric, you know what I mean, and so quick to cause the cognitive dissonance and to cause the light bulbs come on because they've never heard anything different, but it's like they always know there has to be something different because what we're learning doesn't make sense. Thank you. Yes. I think a more prevalent reason for the kind of view that you're talking about is that a personal relationship with God is not experienced by many people more than it is this false view that you have. So what is the basis of entering into personal relationships with people? Getting to know them. So life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, and they'll ascend. And as you get to know someone, you either enter in relationship if you find them loving and trustworthy and loyal and faithful, or you distance yourself from them if you don't. Isn't that kind of how relationships work? So does it matter what view of God we hold on the kind of relationship we develop with him? Well, it does, but I don't see the big disconnect that you're, that you're proposing in these two views. I mean, I have a very vague familiarity with it, but I see this God, angry God that you're talking about, and I think that uh, there's a time and a place to be angry, and I don't think that is so disconnected from a God of love. So it depends on what they're angry at, toward, and with. Are they angry at their children, or are they angry at the disease which infects their children? Which is completely different. We absolutely believe God is very angry at, at sin, like a doctor is angry at disease, angry at smallpox, angry at polio. And, they, and doctors want to destroy polio, destroy smallpox, destroy disease, absolutely. But they never want to destroy sick patients, even non-compliant patients who won't take remedy. I would agree with that. That's not what they're teaching. They're teaching God actually will use his power to cause people to suffer longer in the flames appropriate for the deeds that they've done that they haven't asked forgiveness for because justice requires that those sins must be punished. I wonder if it could also be important having this different view of God because I wonder if maybe that could also be the... um, last great deception in the last days as well. If you have a different distorted view of God, could Satan then come in and impersonate a different kind of God that we... Oh, there's no, there's no question in my mind. Yes, I think... That's my thing. Yes, absolutely. That, because those of us who may be having a, a good relationship, but with a God that may not be the right picture of who God is, Satan could easily come in and impersonate that kind of different God that we might have. Yeah, I listened on Moody Radio, and you'll find this all the time on Moody Radio, where these people are very passionate in their relationship with God, but they believe that God's justice requires coercive pressure. We must punish sin. This is, in an extreme form, what I mentioned at the New York church up there. They, why were they beating these kids? If you, the interviews are already come, are starting to come out from the parents in the church. We, it's because we love them. Because, because they wanted to leave the church. Because, because, because we wanted to beat the sin out of them so they would be saved. I mean, this is twisted. Because they don't understand they're operating level four and below. They think God's law functions like a system of rules. And, and I understand that. When you operate in human law stru- constructs, speed limits, tax laws, and so forth, if there is no enforcement of the rule, then there's no fairness. There's no justice. That, that, that's how it works in an arbitrary system of rules. However, you don't have to enforce the law of gravity on people who decide to jump off buildings. It doesn't matter their view, their belief. They can deny the existence of it. They, don't, they can say, I refuse to believe in that law. You made it up. Gravity doesn't really care. It does the same thing, regardless of your color of your skin, the height of your, the height, your body weight. It does, this, gravity is constant. God's laws are constants. They never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's a constant. And he's constantly good, constantly loved, constantly merciful, constantly gracious. He doesn't have two faces. He doesn't come back at the second coming smiling at the righteous and, and frowning at the wicked. And Dr. Maxwell talks about how everyone is God's children. We don't, if someone asks us how many kids we have, we don't say, well, today I only have one because two are misbehaving. I mean, we're all God's children. That's everyone on the planet. Yeah. And he feels for us all the same. Yes, and, and when we come back, and really the struggle is to get our mind out of the rut of this imperialistic system of rules. You know, we talk, talk about the judgment. Uh, um, we, we, maybe we should actually jump to that in the lesson. We'll have to come back, I think, to, to Monday. Let's jump to Monday's lesson. We'll, we'll, we'll explore and unpack this some more.
The job of the prophets has always been to convey God's message, not to count how many people accept or reject it. Generally, the numbers of those who accept what the prophet preached at the time they are preaching it is low. For example, though we don't know how many were alive at the time of Noah, we can reasonably assume that the majority was not very receptive, given the small number who got into the ark. All through sacred history, this seems to be the pattern. Why do you think we humans don't seem to listen to the messages of truth at the time that they're given? Because it would cause... We already have it. Be, oh, one reason, because we already have it. The, the, the Jews in Christ's day. We, we're, we're children of Abraham. We, we've got the promises. Who are you to tell us we're not sons of Abraham? We've got the truth. And, and you know any, any church organizations today that promote themselves as the remnant with the truth? I mean, why should they look for more truth? They've got it. Consider Revelation 7, though, in, in, in light of this, uh, this description of history, which I think is true, that people at the time of the prophets rarely listen to them. But Revelation 7 describes at the end of time that there will be a group of spokespersons for God who give a message from which a great multitude of every nation, tribe, kindred, and people will respond and be saved. So a massive group of people at the end of time are going to respond to this message and be saved. It's going to be different. But what makes it different at the end of time? I think there's two, two big keys that make a difference. What will be the condition of the world at the time when this final message goes forward? It would be a crisis after crisis. The four winds are being loosed. See, 144,000 of God's spokespersons, metaphorically the group of people who are um, going to give this final message, are settled into the truth. Once they're settled and sealed, then the four winds are loosed and troubles happen. And from their witness, a great multitude comes. So the troubled times are going to cause people to actually ask, what's going on? What's going on? And that's one thing. People are actually interested to find the answers. You can't really educate people who have no interest in learning. So one, they'll be interested. Two, though, I think you'll have on earth at that time a group of people who give the clearest, most rational, most reasonable, most evidence-based, most comprehensive um, um, witness and description of the controversy, God's character, what's actually happening in the world. It makes more sense than any other representation of the events throughout human history. It'll be the most comprehensive view ever given. So I think those two things together. Yes. Even more so than Jesus when he was here because Jesus spoke mostly in parables and metaphors. Didn't he? Yeah. So not that we know more than him, but we will, we will present it with more evident, not evidence-based, um, objective reality-based descriptions rather than metaphorical and parable descriptions. Yeah, Wendell had his hand. A statement from Mrs. White was circulated this week, and it's um, from Gospel Workers 479. It says, The very act of looking for evil in others develops evil in those who look. By dwelling upon the faults of others, we are changed in the same image. But by beholding Jesus, talking of his love and perfection of character, we become changed into his image. By, by looking at evil for others. And what kind of law is being described there? This is the law of worship. It's a design law. By beholding, we become changed. We actually neurobiologically change our neural structure and our characters based on what we spend time viewing, esteeming, valuing, participating in, practicing. We are changed by that process. That's a design law. It's not a rule. If we believe God is an evil being who is looking for the evil in us to root it out or to mark it in his little books or whatever then we will become like that. Yes. Russell, thank you very much. About uh, doing things, giving even a better message or a more compelling message to Christ himself, many, many of those that quote 144,000 will have been raised and steeped in a pagan-type uh, God worship and will have come out of that. So we can reveal not only in our word testimony, but our behaviors, the change in our life, the people will people will see the change and the evidence of, of what a conversion experience looks like. And that's how that's how it'll be more compelling than what Christ Himself did. Again, consider the parallels, and I like what you're saying here between Jeremiah's day, Israel, that time of history, and the final end of time. A message be given to pull people from Baal worship, and then what's the second angel's message? Where was Jeremiah telling the people they were going to go? They were going to Babylonian captivity. Babylon has fallen, it's fallen. These are object lesson parallels here. 
We are captive into a fallen system of Babylonian God construct ideas, which is based on human law construct. And we are called out to give a witness that's different. Yes? We see that it's because of the false um, interpretation of the scriptures that we have these ideas about God. Because everybody goes to the Old Testament and they will show that this is where they get the thought from. Jesus having the Old Testament, where would he would have that truth that at the end of his life he would have said he had declared the Father's glory, he had declared his name, and there was no lies about it. You know, there's a couple of interesting points about that. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, Ellen White, if you value her descriptions of Christ's upbringing, points out that he was not sent to the schools of the prophets. He was taught by his mother at home because the school of the prophets had become so corrupted with this legalistic law concept that it would have actually corrupted the child savior's mind. And so he was taught from the scripture directly at the knee of his mother with the Holy Spirit. And she said that Christ had three, and she says it in several places, threads of evidence that he harmonized. God's word, she says, God's word in scripture, in nature, and in experience. All three harmonized. And if you look at his way he practiced and taught, he would teach scripture, and then he would show it in nature and in human experience, how it all worked. God is the creator of reality. We understand that, then we understand. When we understand his laws, they always translate to reality. They always translate into the world around us and into our own life experiences. You can't divorce them. One of the problems that have come out of the Dark Ages is the misunderstanding of Luther's statement, Sola Scriptura, where he was trying to say, I'm taking scripture over tradition, and instead it's come to mean we will take scripture and exclude science and experience. And thus we deny two out of the three threads and we unhook scripture interpretation from how reality actually works and we end up with 34,000 different Christian groups all arguing which way the Bible should be interpreted. So I think Christ revealed the truth in objective reality in what he did. And look at all of his parables, what he did, his healings, all of it was showing how life and reality works. It's a great question. Let's go to Wednesday's lesson real quick because I think there's an interesting quote here that needs unpacking. First paragraph, it states, in the first paragraph, starting in the middle, it says, As stated before, the God these prophets served is perfect. The prophets who served them were not. They, like the rest of us, were sinners in need of the righteousness of Christ to be credited to them by faith. From Noah to Peter and everyone in between, all were sin-damaged creatures whose only hope was, as Ellen G. White says, to go before the Lord and say, I have no merit or goodness whereby I may claim salvation, but I present before God the all-atoning blood of the spotless Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is my only plea. The name of Jesus gives me access to the Father. His ear, his heart, is open to my faintest pleading, and he supplies my deepest necessities. Now, I thought this was worthy of us unpacking. First off, I want you to notice that the quote, uh, the, they, they, the authors use the, the terminology credited to. I went and did an, in a search of the E.G. White files and CD-ROM, and I typed in this word credited, and not one time does she use credited in application of Christ's righteousness to a sinner. Not once. Check me out on that. So she doesn't use it this way. Never does she say his righteousness is somehow legally credited to us. Never happens. So... I don't use it that way either. I think this is, again, an artifact of, of operating in the wrong legal dynamic. If you look at uh, what she did write, though, there is a... Uh, oh, by the way, before we even go to that part, uh, here's another quote out of the book, The Cross of Christ by George Knight. This idea of justification. This is this legal justification where God declares people to be righteous even though they're not righteous. Now think that through. God looks at you and he says, Joe is righteous even though he's not. We declare him to be so, even though he's not. Does anyone have a problem with that just on the surface? God declares things to be true that are not true? Doesn't make any sense to me at all, but this is out of uh, uh, the, the same book, The Cross of Christ. Paul coined the metaphor of justification to meet the problem of, legal, of the legal curse of the law with its death penalty. Justification brings, to us the court, brings us to the courtroom. In, is a person righteous or guilty before the divine judge? In Romans 3, justification does not mean to make righteous, but rather to declare righteous. See how they're making that distinction? You're not righteous. Don't even think you're going to be changed to be righteous. No way. You're just being declared it, even though you're still not. It's a lie, in other words. It's a fraud. It's a fabrication. 
It's not even what the Greek word means in the text that they're quoting. If you go and look at the lexicon, if you were to declare that you have $50 in your checking account, it, it means that you actually have $50 in your checking account. You can't declare it if you don't have it. That's what the Greek word means, but that's not how we use it today. So the root idea is justification. George Eldon Ladd writes, is the, is the declaration of God the righteous judge Yeah, the root idea of justification is the declaration of God, the righteous judge, that the man who believes in Christ, sinful though he may be, is viewed as being righteous because in Christ he has come into a right relationship with God. One would expect a just God to punish those who deserve it. That is what justice means. It's just unbelievable to me. You wonder why Christ hasn't returned. Because people will be mentioned earlier. Before Christ comes, there's going to be an impersonation of him. A being of brilliant light is going to come, and he's going to speak melodious words, and he's going to perform miracles, and he say he loves us, and he's going to call for justice. And justice will take a certain view. You obey me, or I will be forced to punish you. And the whole Christian world will go, this is our God, we have waited for him. Because they buy into this false theology. Biblical justice, as we pointed out many, many times, I'll give you many Bible texts for it. It's in the DVD, the red one out there, in the second lecture, Designer or Dictator, is always delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. The punishing the oppressor view comes out of the imperial law construct. Just think about walking in on somebody who's trying to hang themselves by a rope and they just kick the table out from under them. They're breaking the law of respiration. They're a lawbreaker. What will justice require you to do? If you do the just thing, if you do the right thing, Punish them, beat them, have a trial. and No, to deliver them. Understanding design law, every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for him to transgress again. It separates them from the channel of life and the sure result is ruin and death. We want to reconcile people back to God because they will die if we don't. So before I read any more Ellen White quotes on righteousness by faith and what justification actually is from her perspective, I thought we should decode the quote that they have in the lesson. So if you have your lesson in front of you, we'll go through some of this either... Um, metaphorical or ill-defined language and, and define what the words mean and then we'll put it all together. Merit. What is merit? It's an objective fact or state of being which is worthy of reward, acknowledgement, or praise. That's a merit. An objective fact or state of being. Claim. What is a claim? To, to demand by right or inherent fact. I have a claim. I have a right. Salvation. Well, what does that mean? Depends on your law lens. If you're looking through the imposed law lens, it takes on legal connotations. But design law, it actually means healing and restoration. And in the Greek New Testament, sozo, save, and salvation. Salvation, same root word as salve, like I salve. It actually does mean to heal and to regenerate. Atone, what law lens? If you're looking through the imposed law lens, you think it means some type of legal payment or appeasement or propitiation. If you're looking through design law, you know it means what it originally meant in 1611 when the word actually came into existence. It means to restore to oneness, to make at one, to unify. Blood, symbolic for life. Lamb of God, sinless Jesus. Sin of the world, which law lens? Is it, if you're using the imposed view, then you read this to mean every bad act that was ever committed by every human being on earth was placed upon Christ on the cross and was punished by God in Christ on the cross. Under design law, we realize what this is talking about is the terminal condition of sinfulness itself, our iniquity, our sinful state Christ took upon himself to cure. Plea, which law ends? If we use the imposed law, then this is a legal plea. And we say something like this, based on the innocence of Jesus who paid my penalty, I plead not guilty. And I hear this. Through the design law, we read as, as a patient calling out to his doctor, please save me. Please heal me. Name of Jesus. Under the legal view, the legal accomplishments of Jesus uh, is what is understood. And we speak the right name and we are guaranteed access because Jesus has met the legal requirements on our behalf. Design law, though, we realize that the name is symbolic of character. And thus we have, if we've opened the heart and trust, had the character of Christ reproduced within us. And it is only those who are like Christ who can actually stand to be in God's presence. Those who are not like Christ don't want to be there. They can't tolerate the unveiled glory of his presence. And they run from his presence begging for the mountains to hide him from who he who sits on the, on the throne. So putting it all together, I reword it this way. That same quote. I have no healthiness of character or goodness of heart whereby I may claim to be in harmony with God's design and thus eternally well. 
but I present before God the all-healing and restoring life of the perfect Son of God, which removes all defects and deviations from God's design. This is my only hope of life for which I call out in need. The character of Jesus heals me and enables me to enter the Father's presence. So the Bible teaches that justification is an actual change of heart. So you justify, when you justify the margins, you take what's out of harmony, what's out of line, and you put it in line. You set it right. It means to set right. Now, when Adam sinned, what got set wrong? Did God get set wrong? Did God's law get set wrong? Then did, did whatever Christ did, did he have to do something to God or to God's law to set it right? No, did mankind, the human species, have something change in this species that we're not set right? We're not right anymore. We're wrong in some way. So whatever Christ is doing, he's doing it in man. The effect has to be in the species human in order to set the species human right with God and his law. And thus, in Romans 4, Abraham, you know, the natural state of the human heart, according to Romans 8, is enmity. We don't trust him. We're against him. That's our natural carnal state. The carnal heart is enmity or against God. But in Romans 4, it says Abraham trusted God. That's not against anymore. That means his heart, has, which was against God, has now been set right with God. And it says in the text, Abraham trusted God and then was recognized, declared, understood to be righteous. That was an actual change of heart condition in a relationship with God, which, which changed. There's no legal declaration happening here. Yes? So when Adam ate the fruit from Eve, did he not fully trust God that, he could, that God could recreate Eve, the one he loved so much? If he really trusted God to do that, why would he have taken the fruit? Instead of just going to God, God, Eve blew it here, and I know you can fix her. Will you fix her for me, please? <laughs> and, and ladies, this is a little aside. Ladies, would you have preferred Adam to say, Eve, I'm sorry you blew it, but I, um, you know, I, I'm 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 just gonna have you kicked out of the garden. I'm staying here. <laughs> or, or ladies, do you do you somehow see some part of me? I love you too much to let you go. I'm going with you. Yeah. Hmm. Just as an aside. Okay, here's some quotes from Ellen White that will on this idea of justification and what it actually is, and this idea of imputed. The people who take the legal view use this term imputed righteousness as a legal um, uh, declaration of righteousness that God, in his mind's eye, looks at you as, as if you're righteous, even though you're not. So he imputes their credit and credits to you what Christ has accomplished, even though you're still not changed. But notice, notice how Ellen White um, yeah, will use some of these words in a moment. The law requires righteousness. This is Desire of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. Substitution. He took our place and did what we could not. What? Perfecting the character of humankind. This he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are past. Somebody asked me before class about the sins of the past. Remission of sins of the past through the forbearance of God. Not from a payment. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. So far, are we reading about transformation, renewal, regeneration? And notice what she says. Thus, God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Many people say, no, no, you're describing sanctification when you talk about transformation of art and renewal and regeneration. No, no, justification is the legal thing. Right here, just and justification is this whole right thing that Christ did in becoming human, taking our condition upon himself and putting a right character, developing a right character by the exercise of his humanity. And then he offers this to redo this in us. That's the right thing to do. It's like taking the rope off somebody's neck who's trying to hang themselves. i gotta, I got to push on because we're already running low on time. I want to get a couple of these other quotes because they're quite profound. This is uh, Faith I Live By, page 112. And now the first paragraph here, many people in the legal view, will, well, you might get it quoted to you. If you get it quoted to you, just ask them to read on. But here's the first paragraph. The great work that is wrought for the sinner who is spotted and stained by evil is the work of justification. By him who speaks truth, he, he is declared righteous. 
The Lord imputes unto the believer the righteousness of Christ and pronounces him righteous before the universe. He transfers his sins to Jesus, the sinner's representative, substitute, and surety. And many people will just stop right there. And they don't want to go on. Read what this same author then writes as she describes the meaning of all these words. Through repentance and faith, we are rid of sin. Notice we're not rid of the punishment for sin. We're rid of sin. Isn't that interesting? Having, now, next words, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just. That's the very next, right below it. So he doesn't pronounce us unless he makes us. And he makes us through the imputed righteousness of Christ. So what came first? God made us righteous in Christ. And those who partake of Christ, he then have the heart changed, set right to trust God again. They're pronounced righteous. He looks upon us as dear children. Now, I love this sentence. I'm going to ask you to think about it. Christ works against the power of sin. And where sin abounded, grace much more abound. Pause. Where does sin abound? In record books, in courtrooms in heaven, or in the hearts and minds of human beings on earth. Where sin abounds, Christ works with his grace. He's not working in the courtroom. He's working in your heart and mind. That's where he does his work. Next quote. This is God's Amazing Grace, page 96. By beholding, we become changed. Notice, we become changed. Morally assimilated to the one who is perfect in character by receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. This is uh, Amazing Grace 181. Abundant grace has been provided that the believing soul may be kept free from sin. For all heaven, with its limitless resources, has been placed at our command. In ourselves we are sinners, but in Christ we are righteous. Having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just. Notice what comes. He makes us righteous, therefore he pronounces us so. Uh, This is our high calling, 364. We aim too low. Yes, we do. We aim for a legal adjustment of our record books in heaven. That's what we aim for. The mark is much higher. Our minds need expansion. Boy, don't they. That we may comprehend the significance of the provision of God. We are to reflect the highest attributes of the character of God. The law of God is the exalted standard on which we are to attain through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Notice again, this imputed, this imputed, not imparted, imputed. Last quote. This is uh, that I may know him, 206. He would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to die that we might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God. What is the workmanship of God? So where is the defiling stains of sin to be removed? How many times have you heard it presented? He's in heaven. The record books are open. He's going through the record books. Some sins are retained. Some sins are removed. It's not what's happening, guys. The only way you get sin, so to speak, out of your record book is to have it removed from your heart and character. Because the record books record perfectly your character. That's what's recorded there. Your individuality is recorded. It's a heavenly server backing up your psyche, your soul, your software, your personhood. So removing the defiling statements from the workmanship of God and reinstate the lost, elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity, notice all this transforming stuff, through Christ's imputed righteousness. This does not fit at all with the imperial law model and this infection that I read out of that other book that is held up as a standard. I'm going to tell you, it's used in the theology department right up here on the hill. It was used five years ago when we had a, uh, a months-long discussion with that department. That was their textbook that they presented to me. This is the standard upon which we understand the atonement. And you wonder why we're paralyzed. We need a people so settled into the truth about God and the setting of the great controversy, understanding his law, his design, that can go out and shed this light on the world. And when that, once that group is settled... So sealed, sealed in their foreheads, they cannot be moved from it, both intellectually and spiritually. Then the four winds are loosened. A terrible time comes. We give a witness. A great multitude is saved, and the Lord comes. I'm, I'm wanting that day. Our gracious Heavenly Father.
We thank you that you are gracious, righteous, pure, holy. We love the way you've designed your universe in harmony with yourself. We realize that we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity, born with a condition we never chose, but for which you have provided remedy. We ask now that your spirit would be poured out to take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We may become real partakers of your divine nature, revealing truthfully your character, your truth, your love, your methods of freedom. Give us discernment. Help us put the pieces together. Help us free our minds from this deeply ingrained imperial infection of our minds about how you've been so misrepresented. And we ask that you open doors and avenues for this message to go forward. Bring more workers to the field, because we do want to see you come soon, Lord. We pray in your holy name. Amen.